The scripture lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 49. The focus of our study will be verses 22 to 33, but I'll begin the reading in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. You Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you. By the Almighty, who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the mountains, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, 
which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we do pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit now and that he would direct us in the truth of your word and that he would help us to see Christ clearly in this text from Genesis 49. And indeed, so direct our faith unto these ends, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We just heard the last words of Jacob to his sons, the blessings that he imparted to each of them in his prophetic utterances. The words to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi sound more like judgment than blessing, and in some respects are, though they will receive grace in the future as a part of Israel. Judah is definitely set forth as the Lion King, followed by Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, who are the king's men, performing various kingdom duties, as is described of them. And you may also remember the overall structure that places Dan, and particularly verse 18, in the center with corresponding sections relating to the respective sons, further explaining the order in which Jacob's words are given. Jacob's speaking poetry, and it's poetry that is highly structured and intentional. And as we've had our fair share of challenges to discern the meaning of some of Jacob's words and imagery, the blessing of Joseph is, in the words of one scholar, the longest, most complex, and most obscure, the reasons for which we'll consider momentarily. We might think or hope that the words to Joseph would be the easiest to understand, but that's not the case. But again, as we consider Jacob's blessings of his sons, Joseph and Benjamin, the two sons born to him by Rachel, his queen, and his parting instructions to all of his sons, we are in, again impressed with the work of Christ, the life of faith to which we're called to live in him and the promises that have been given to us. Well, let's begin to look at some of the details of the text. And immediately in verse 22, we're posed with a translational challenge. Now, most of the English translations that we read refer to Joseph as a fruitful bough. New King James and ESV read this way. And that's a legitimate reading of the text. Another possibility, however, is that Joseph is compared to a wild ass, a wild donkey. So that verse 22 reads something like this. A son of a wild she-ass is Joseph. A son of a wild she-ass near a spring. His daughters, his wild asses by a wall. Now, why do some scholars contend for this second reason, uh, the second reading? Well, a few reasons. First, where the ESV or the New King James read fruitful, it's literally son of, which is never used in relation to plants. In other words, you wouldn't say that someone was the son of a bough or the son of a tree or the son of a fig, uh, or fig tree. While we might recognize that Jacob is speaking poetry, to mix the metaphors in this way has no precedent, no other precedent in Scripture. Secondly, when Jacob employs analogies in blessing his sons, he primarily uses animal analogies. He called Judah a lion, Issachar a strong donkey, Dan a serpent, and Naphtali a doe. And although he compares Reuben to water and Zebulun to a haven for ships, 
and he doesn't use an analogy for each son, to suddenly employ plant imagery for Joseph seems unlikely. Furthermore, to refer to Joseph as the son of a wild she-ass is directly parallel to Judah as the whelp of a lion. In the third place, the third line of verse 22, his branches run over the wall, as the ESV reads, begins more literally, daughters. Just as you don't have a son of a plant, neither do you find a daughter of a plant in Scripture either. Also, the word run over or stride is never used of a plant, and in other Semitic languages it can mean wild asses or wild donkeys. Fourth, and this is a less technical point, but in verse 23, the archers that are said to attack would be shooting arrows at a plant, which would also be an unusual metaphor to employ. Granted, not impossible, but unlikely. Now, why would Jacob use this language, and how does this help us understand what he's saying? Well, he's setting up a series of significant puns. First, the name Ephraim means fruitfulness, and that sounds a lot like the word that we're translating wild donkey. It's also this connection that leads some commentators and translators to go with the first translation mentioned of fruitful bow. But in making this pun on the name of Ephraim, Jacob is alluding to the blessings upon Joseph's son, whom Jacob adopted as his own, and who treated and blessed Ephraim the younger as the firstborn, as we studied in the previous chapter. Second, the word used here sounds a lot like the name Pharaoh, which has clear implications to Joseph's experience in Egypt, which we'll flesh out in a few minutes. So the characterization focuses on Ephraim, and there's a sense in which fruitful Ephraim is also a wild ass or will be one. And while the imagery might be challenging for us to accept, the fact that Joseph is the son of a wild she-ass means that Rachel is a wild she-ass. And how is she wild? Did she do crazy things? Did she join a biker gang and stay out late parting against her father Laban's wishes? Well, no. She's wild because she wasn't originally part of Abraham's direct people. She was related, but, uh, but farther removed. And so there's a sense in which she's wild. Still more, Ephraim was officially adopted by Jacob, which then makes Ephraim a son of Rachel, the wild she-ass, and his sons will be wild asses also. And you'll recall how often wives and wells, or wives and water imagery, appear in the stories of the patriarchs. And even how wells are signs of God's life-giving grace to his chosen people. So along with Ephraim is a wild ass by a spring, a spring of God's grace, and also protected by his wall. That seems to be the best way to understand the imagery. But also, Joseph is a son of Pharaoh, of the high king of the world. Now, what did Pharaoh do to indicate this? Well, he gave Joseph a golden collar and a signet ring and basically made him a prince, didn't he? A prince is usually a son. All that Pharaoh did for Joseph had the marks of sonship. So there are these various word plays going on in the text. And then what do we read about in verse 23? They attack him and they shoot, and lords of arrows try to eliminate him. Now clearly, Joseph is described as being under attack, and elsewhere in Scripture, arrows are equated with slander, so the lords of arrows could be equated with slanderers. Who could this refer to? Well, Joseph's brothers, who attacked him and lied about him to their father. Certainly Potiphar's wife, and maybe other Egyptians who didn't care for Joseph's rise to power and rule. 
Joseph's life is an amazing one, but it was hardly easy. And how did he respond to these attacks? Yet his bow remained unmoved. The arms of his hands were made agile. He rolled with the punches and kept going. He wasn't defeated by his attackers. And why not? Because of God's hands. Remember, hands symbolize power um, and authority. And, and Jacob employs three names here for God. The mighty one of Jacob, Jacob's champion on high, which may contain an allusion to the dream and meeting uh, at Bethel back in chapter 28. Jacob left the land and was protected. Joseph left the land and was protected. Jacob's champion is Joseph's champion. As the mighty one delivered Jacob from his enemies, so he delivered Joseph. Jacob also refers to God as the shepherd. Imagery found elsewhere in scripture, of course, even as David declares in Psalm 23, and as John describes uh, Jesus in John 10. You'll recall that shepherds are associated with kings, so God is the overlord of Israel. And this is also fitting imagery given the fact that Jacob and his sons were shepherds. And then Jacob calls God the stone of Israel. Back in chapter 28, Jacob placed a stone above his head when he slept, and then he set it up as a pillar. There may also be an allusion here to the protective wall he mentioned in verse 22. Later in Israel's history, the rock would be the source of water in the wilderness and also described uh, as a rock that followed them. As the stone of Israel, Jacob may be referring to God, his foundation, and the foundation upon which the nation of Israel would be built. The stone of Israel is the stone for Israel himself and for Israel's sons, Joseph in particular. So following the description of Joseph as a wild donkey, the dangers he encountered and his emergence as a warrior, Jacob goes on to articulate the blessing in verses 25 to 26. Five times bless or blessings are mentioned in these two verses. And if you look carefully, the name El Shaddai is divided in the first two lines of verse 25. From your father's El, God, the mighty, God, mighty one, who supports you, from Shaddai, who blesses you. Now remember, El Shaddai isn't a name used often, and the exact meaning of Shaddai is unknown, though typically translated almighty, but it occurs in connection with descendants. In 17.1, it is El Shaddai who initiates the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, directly related to his seed. In 28.3, Isaac calls for El Shaddai to bless Jacob, that he might be fruitful and multiply. In 35.11, El Shaddai appears to Jacob, declaring his name to be Israel, and that he be fruitful and multiply. We have the use of the name in 43.14, and as recently uh, and as recently as 48.3, where Jacob recounts to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of people and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. What does this name indicate? That God is the mighty one who initiates the future and takes care of our children. If the, if the name Yahweh uh, means promise keeper, then El Shaddai is the one who is all-powerful and can be absolutely trusted to bring about the promises that he's made. And so Jacob calls upon this God to bless Joseph with the blessings of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath. And that, that's a pretty faithful translation as the word used there is the same as the one Jacob used of the crouching lion and the crouching donkey in verses 9 and 14 in relation to Judah and Issachar. But what's the picture? Blessing from the entire expanse of creation. 
from, from heaven above to the, the waters beneath or below. The blessing is all-encompassing of creation, even as this word for the deep was used in Genesis 1 and verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This also echoes words spoken to Adam in relation to creation and the dominion mandate, even as Joseph is set forth as a new Adam here at the end of Genesis, a point we've noted on multiple occasions. The blessings of breasts and womb are fitting and certainly appear to be an allusion to children. And while we might think the blessing of the womb should come first, Jacob may be keeping a certain spatial imagery intact as breasts are above a womb. Also, the womb parallels the imagery of the deep, even as the key connection between women and waters and wells is, again, it's a key theme in Scripture. And, and so life is formed in the darkness, even as the Spirit formed the world in the beginning. David employs this imagery in Psalm 139 when he states, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And though the blessings proclaimed to Joseph echo what was spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they also surpass them, even as verse 26 seems to indicate. May the blessings of your father transcend the blessings of mountains eternal, the bounds of hills without age. And Jacob's not blessing himself here but saying that the blessings he's giving be more than the blessings of ancient mountains and the goodness of eternal hills. What's that mean? Well, the ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East and the Bible, uh, the mountains, the hills are always green, and so they're co- uh, constantly a source of life and blessing, even in the summertime when everything else is dried up. So Jacob is blessing Joseph with a blessing that never stops. And that kind of imagery is picked up on later in Scripture with the mountain of God that is an eternal source of life and blessing, a mountain that will eventually fill the whole earth, as we read about in Daniel chapter 2. Or, as you may recall in Genesis 2, the four rivers flowed out of the mountain and Eden to the ends of the earth. God dwells on the mountain, even as Jesus is described as dwelling on the heavenly Mount Zion in Hebrews 12, where we are assembled with him even now. Well, the, la- the, latter, the last part of Jacob's blessing in the latter part of verse 26 is, a little bit tricky to translate, um, though the ESV and New King James both do a pretty good job of getting at the sense of it. It reads, May they fall upon the head of Joseph on the crown of the consecrated one among his brothers. Now, the consecrated one, the one set apart or separated from his brothers, is the word Nazir, uh, from which Nazarite, as in Nazarite vow, is derived, uh, the details of which are given in number six. A Nazarite was set apart in one major respect, by his head, specifically his hair. A Nazarite was a holy warrior. He was called to a special task, and that task was that of priest-king. He was separated to take dominion to conquer. Joseph had been set apart from his brothers for this task. These blessings reside upon Joseph's head. This was his purpose from the beginning. This is what he has done, and this is what he and Israel are to continue to do. And and it isn't difficult to see Jesus pictured in Joseph, is it? Jesus is set apart for a specific task from the beginning, from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb. He too is the priest-king, even the greater Adam, the greater Joseph, who has taken dominion to whom has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He is the head of the church, set apart from his brothers, upon whom all blessings rest, and from whom all blessings flow. He endured the attack of the lords of the arrows against him, 
the slanderers, and emerge victorious and all the creation serves him and is for him, and in him the blessings of new life are given through the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to verse 27, and the blessing upon Benjamin, Jacob's last and youngest son, and the words are relatively few, just a single verse. Benjamin is compared to a ravenous wolf. Now, wolves are rarely, if ever, good guys in our stories. That's not necessarily the case here. The language parallels some of the language used of Judah back in verse 9. He was a lion that tore his prey, his enemies to pieces, and Benjamin is a wolf that does the same. And that's basically a good thing. There's kingly imagery and language here too. Remember, Benjamin means son of my right hand, a position of power and authority. And you'll recall all of the kingly connotations associated with Benjamin when Joseph tested his brothers. So in the morning, Benjamin devours the prey and in the evening divides the spoils. You know, he makes quick work of his enemies. And so long as he's faithful, these are good attributes to have against one's enemies. At the end of the book of Judges, however, the negative connotations with Benjamin's wolf-like qualities seem to emerge as the tribe of Benjamin goes to war against all of the other tribes of Israel and are nearly massacred out of existence, but they fought valiantly against their brethren. Before that episode, though, uh, the judge Ehud came from Benjamin. His famous story is recounted in Judges 3 when he slew King Eglon, losing his sword in Eglon's fat rolls. Later, Saul comes from Benjamin as well, um, and his son Jonathan, who was a great warrior. Mordecai, a main character in Esther, is also a Benjamite. So Benjamin is a warrior, though he will prove to be an unfaithful one at various points in Israel's history. Well, that concludes Jacob's words to his son. But then notice how verse 28 acts as a summary statement. And three times, blessed or blessing is used. And also note that this is the first time the 12 tribes are mentioned in the Bible. All these, uh, or at least the title as 12 tribes, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Again, the, the emphasis upon blessing. And although a case can be made that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were not blessed in a sense, yet the sons are all blessed together and each participate in the blessings as well as in the warnings as all of them were present, having gathered together at Jacob's orders. And a principle that we can glean from the text at this point is that just as Jacob had different blessings for his different sons because of the various callings each of them had, so we should understand that each of us have different roles and callings in the life of the church. You know, we, we are a body, and that body is made up of different parts that perform different functions. And there needs to be a measure of, of holy contentment in recognizing that your story is not the story of the person sitting in front of you or next to you or behind you. There isn't just one way for each and every one of us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Now, of course, God's word applies uniformly to us, but, that, but the working out of, of some of the applications is going to look differently for different people given what God has called them to, gifts he's given, and so forth. You know, sometimes we can unwittingly think that because we do something a certain way, then everyone else should. Or because our family does this, then all families should do it too. Well, be careful with that. And check yourself when you find yourself thinking or talking that way because more, more than likely it's over secondary or tertiary matters and the Lord has called us to different things. 
Well, then in verses 29 to 32, Jacob gives a command to all of the sons to bury him in Canaan, a command he'd specifically given to Joseph back in chapter 47. And I suspect there's a highly stylized structure to these verses, though I haven't figured it out yet. But in verse 29, he declares that he's to be gathered to his people, and the last line of verse 33 states that he was. And surely you notice during the reading, but note again, the repetition of language, even the unnecessary repetition of language regarding where Jacob was to be buried. Three times the cave is mentioned, four times the field. Ephron is named twice, and the Hittites are mentioned three times. And burial or buried is mentioned some five times. Jacob is overly specific that he wants to be buried in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to, east, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite for a burying place. And this is where Sarah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah are all buried. Interestingly enough, this is the only time Rebekah and Leah's burials are mentioned. But they're buried in the cave too, and that's where Jacob wants to be buried as well. Now, why is Jacob so adamant about this? Why does he command them to do this? And why did he make Joseph swear to do this? Well, Jacob's theology is driving his thinking here, namely his faith in the promises of God. God connected himself and his promises to this land. And Jacob believes those promises, even as the land itself pictures a better country. Consider in death, the patriarchs were wanderers no longer. In death, they occupied the promised land. We will see in the next chapter when Joseph was sent back to be buried, the language used is to ascend or go up. They are going up into heaven, so to speak, into their inheritance in death. And that is particularly the case with Jacob. The land in which they wandered in life, they occupied in death. So the promise was inherited on the other side of death, which is true for us. The fullness of God's promises we only get to enjoy after we die. We are still, to an extent, wandering in this world. The new covenant has a great deal more than the old covenant had, but we are still in the flesh, and we are still in a fallen world. It is when we die and go to heaven that we are free from those limitations, and then we are resurrected at the end of time that we are given the fullness of what we are promised. The principle is the same. There's inheritance that comes at death, and that is what is pointed to, which is why that is, this is stressed so much. They did inherit the land after they died. Abraham had acquired this small piece of land as first fruits back in chapter 23. The Hittites tried to give it to him, but Abraham said he didn't want a gift. He wanted to pay for it so that it would come from God to him. God had given him money, and he would use that money to pay for it. The small portion of purchased land is holy ground. Eventually, all of Canaan would become holy ground when Israel conquered it, even the land near Bethlehem where Rachel was buried, perhaps signifying that the tribes of Israel still had work to do, that they needed to go and conquer the land. At this point in Israel's history, Rachel's burial spot is outside of the promised land. Eventually, it won't be. Well, finally, verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, the reference to drew up his feet into the bed is interesting as it corresponds to the mention of Jacob's posture back in chapter 48. Joseph was summoned and took his two sons with him to see Jacob. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. 
As you recall, he'd, gone on to, he'd go on to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh as his own and bless them, which was then uh, followed by the blessing of his 12 sons, as we've been studying in chapter 49. So, so the idea is that Jacob's been sitting up all of this time, giving these parting words and blessings. The language of gathered to his people was also used in describing Abraham's death in chapter 25 and verse 8, and Ishmael's in 25, 17. The phrase is used of Isaac's death in 3529 and will later be used to describe the deaths of Aaron and Moses in the book of Numbers. Jacob's soul joins those of his dead relatives in the afterlife. Jacob doesn't cease to exist, but has a conscious existence in the life after death before the final resurrection. In fact, remember how Yahweh identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And in response to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, Jesus says in Mark 12, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Hebrews 12.23 refers to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Jacob is gathered to Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Seth, Abel, Adam, and all the faithful who went before him. But I want, I want you to take a moment or two and appreciate the artful way in which Jacob's expiration is recorded. What impression are you given by the words? He drew his feet into the bed. That he's curling up to go to sleep. And that's precisely what this righteous man of remarkable faith is doing, isn't he? And had we the time this morning, we could, we could go back and rehearse again the life of Jacob, the life marked by wrestling from the womb to the tomb, a life that saw hardship and affliction, that endured suffering and persecution, that grieved the death of a beloved wife and endured the seeming death of a son. Jacob's 147 years old. He's tired and he's going to sleep. But he's a man who's going to sleep full of faith, even as evidenced in his final words to his sons. Jacob is confident in the future, a future he must leave to the Lord and his sons. And that confidence and faith is the fruit of a life of faith, a life that has faced smaller deaths for years and years, that has matured and learned to trust the Lord through those deaths as well. Surely Jacob would agree with the sentiment and faith expressed by all of John Donne's holy sonnet number 10, but especially with the line, one short sleep past, we wake eternally. In reading this account of Jacob's death, I am reminded of the death of Jonathan Edwards, the, the great American theologian who was used mightily by God in the first great awakening in New England. Several weeks after moving to his new appointment as the president of uh, the College of New Jersey, later known as Princeton, Edwards received a smallpox, smallpox inoculation since the disease was prevalent at the time. And although he'd never had smallpox, it was deemed best that he be inoculated. The vaccine took successfully, and it was thought all danger was over when pustules in his mouth and throat began to prevent his swallowing. Unable now to drink sufficiently to prevent a secondary fever, his condition quickly deteriorated and recovery became increasingly unlikely. A little before his death, in speaking briefly to his younger daughter, he said, 
Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now like, le like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. Shortly after leaving messages for the absent members of his family, he, he looked around and said, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? And then those at his bedside believed he was unconscious and expressed grief at what his absent would, absence would mean both to the college and to the church at large. They were surprised when he suddenly uttered a final sentence. Trust in God, and you need not fear. So may the Lord direct our faith in the face of death. And in the future, that is always unknown. And may we meet them resting in God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, King and Friend, who has gone before us even through the veil, and who waits for us to gladly receive us into his presence, which is life forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Jacob that is recorded here, for his testimony of faith, as it directs us in the faith to which we are also called. And may we this day see the greater Jacob and the greater Joseph in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, King, and Friend. And may you indeed sustain us in this faith to which you've called us and strengthen us for the life as we walk into the future with you, knowing that you have gone that way before us. Grant us confidence, help, light, and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.